From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's Veterans Day, and today we're bringing you stories of people who fought for the United States. Some remember past wars like 99-year-old David Howie. And this shell had hit the ground and gone down 12 feet underneath me and burst. Others chart courses for their futures, from a business incubator helping former military members become entrepreneurs to a veteran injured in Iraq who rode across the Atlantic Ocean. Life doesn't end after the military. So you do this epic things for four to 20 years of your life when you're young, but then you get out and then what? You have a whole lot of years left to live and all veterans go through this moment where they have to re-find themselves. They have to look in the mirror and say, who am I gonna be? To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. David Howey celebrated his 99th birthday this week at his home in Denver. It's a far cry from what he remembers as the scary birthday he will never forget. It was 1944 at the height of World War II. He was on the front lines in Italy when his unit ran into some trouble. We got in position and the Germans were on three hills in front of us and to the left and the right. And they knew we were there, and they started sending a lot of artillery fire in. Howie and his fellow soldiers were hunkered down in their foxholes. In the middle of the fight, heavy artillery started raining down. All of a sudden, my foxhole just raised up in the air and lowered, and I couldn't tell what had happened because shells were landing all around me. The ground was shaken. The shells and artillery continued for hours. When they finally let up, Howie climbed out of his foxhole to see what had happened. He found a huge shell that had burrowed underneath him with a delayed fuse. And this shell had hit the ground and gone down 12 feet underneath me and burst. It's 365 pounds of steel and TNT and it had gone off underneath me. It cracked the ground, and the water that had collected in my foxhole was already draining into the big hole that this had made underneath my foxhole. After coming to terms with how close he had come to getting blown up, he used the angle of the shell to calculate where it had come from. Then he went back to the intelligence officer who had a map. Together, they traced the shell back to a huge German cannon kept in a cave. And with the help of the Tuskegee Airmen, they put it out of commission. And I was the battalion graves registration officer. So I had to go out and collect the dog tags of the men that had been killed and put one dog tag in their mouth 
and send the other dog tag back to the rear with the body. And uh, I said to the clerk, what's the date today? And he says, today is the 9th of November. And I said, oh, it's my 23rd birthday. He says, I went out and looked. You were pretty lucky today. And I said, yeah. And I got the only self-training foxhole in the entire area. David Howie is one of about 325,000 World War II veterans who are still alive. After the war was over, he was honorably discharged, but he joined up again as a part of the active reserve because he knew another war was on the horizon. Sure enough, in 1951, he was called back to active duty when the Korean War began. He finally retired with the rank of major in 1963. I was in 20 years, eight months, and 29 days. I said, that's enough. And I retired. And I get a monthly check now, which is very handy. Howie went back to his pre-war career as a printer. He later became a high school teacher, and when it finally came time for him to retire a third time, he and his wife eventually moved to Denver with their children. Now he occasionally goes back to schools to tell young students stories about World War II. The kids love them, and in addition to his luckiest birthday of his life, he likes to tell one other special story about dodging a different kind of fire. You had to have all your buttons buttoned at all times. And one day the captain was inspecting the ranks and the soldier ahead of me had a pocket unbuttoned. So the captain grabs it and says, soldier, do you want that button? Yes, sir. And he rips it off the shirt and says, hold out your hand. Here you wanted it. The same scene played out a few days later with a different soldier. When the captain asked the soldier if he wanted his button, this time the soldier responded in the negative. But the outcome was the same. The captain ripped off the button and threw it on the ground. Eventually, the day came when it was Howie's turn. He was unlucky enough to have his pocket unbuttoned. And the captain, of course, stopped in front of him and asked the fateful question. Do you want that button, soldier? And I answered, Right where it is, sir. And he looked at the sergeant and he says, Sergeant, that excuse will never be used in this unit again. And he let go of my button. And uh, I dodged the bullet that day. David Howie of Denver, a retired major of the U.S. Army, sharing his memories with us on this Veterans Day. He turned 99 years old this week. Special thanks to Colorado Matters producer Carla Jimenez for putting this story together. Most Allied soldiers knew World War II was coming to an end by July 26, 1945. America waited out World War II's last tense hours. At the White House, President Truman, State Secretary Burns, and Cordell Hall stood by for the momentous surrender message from the Japanese. 
but the message didn't reach Roy Christensen until later. He was aboard the USS Raton, a Navy submarine stationed in the Pacific. Ryan Warner met the now 96-year-old veteran in his apartment in Centennial a few years ago. Christensen sat in his leather chair and took us back to the 1940s, explaining why he and his shipmates were among the last to know the war had ended. We were uh, on patrol in the Philippine Sea off the Philippines, and uh, we were still hunting enemy ships. But when uh, the flimsy came into our our boat... uh, Now, what's a flimsy? Well, a flimsy is when we surfaced any messages that were to go to the the ship, they would come through in, in code in about one sentence, and then you had to decode it. And these would only come if you were at the surface of the water. Right, yeah. So we really didn't, we were on our way into Subic Bay for a refitting. Our imagine was about two or three days. We had an idea something was going on, but we really didn't know anything to celebrate that the, the Japanese had surrendered. My goodness, you didn't get the message until you had come ashore. Uh, and there you were patrolling the seas. For days after the war had ended, what, what, what if you had found a ship? I can't answer that. I really don't know. That was, uh, uh, luckily it didn't happen, but uh, in August uh, we had sunk three ships. Tell me about one of those occasions. What was it like? You had a submarine with torpedoes, correct? Yes. One incident that had happened, we were, we'd received a flimsy to... Uh, search out a Japanese submarine because it had a German scientist and an assistant on board, and that was the number one priority, find that submarine and sink it. And the USS Lapan was in that same territory, thought that we were the Japanese submarine, and fired two torpedoes at us. And luckily the torpedoes hit us and glanced off, and One of them went out a couple hundred yards and then exploded. I believe this was the only occasion of friendly fire of one American sub to another one. That's correct, and that still stands. Luckily, at that time, we had some angels riding with us because uh, those torpedoes didn't explode. But uh, we were all sworn to secrecy at that time. And uh, when we got back into port, we were told that we either hit an old mine or we hit a, a palm tree that was floating around in the, in the Pacific. And <laughs> I always kind of laughed about that. I never heard of a palm tree exploding. <laughs> Essentially to save face for the United States Navy, I suppose. That's exactly correct. There was uh, a lot of covering uh, people's... Heinies. Uh, 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 yeah, I, <laughs> right. I didn't want to say that, but that's about what it was. Did you ever find that ship with the German scientist aboard? No, we didn't. You got to remember that in World War II, uh, all the kids that volunteered to get into the Navy, about 50% of them were doing it because they were, they were beating the draft. We were all kids, and we were all looking for excitement and thrills, and and I'll certainly tell you that's where we got them. (laughs) 
I feel like my only experience with a submarine is through movies. And I think I went on the submarine ride at Disneyland as a kid. I'd like a real account of what it was like to be in a sub. How, how far deep would you be? Well, to begin with, in the submarine service, uh, you had to be a volunteer to even get into it. There was a lot of screening before you were accepted for schooling to be in the submarine service. And everybody said, well, how does it feel when you submerge? Uh, it just feels like an airplane. When you click your ears to get your, uh, your jaw straightened out, so to speak, it's the same way when you dive. It's no different uh, undersea than it is on top, except for I better not have claustrophobia in, in a submarine. The boat that I was on was 211 feet long and carried 65 crew. When you submerged in those old diesel electric boats, about 20 to 24 hours was your extreme limit of staying submerged. When you dove into the colder water, it made condensation on the ceiling or the overhead of the submarine, and uh, uh, you kind of had a damp feeling. Your, your clothes were damp all the time. Were you ever afraid? Oh, sure. Uh, anybody that said they were in a submarine service and they weren't scared, uh, uh, they're lying to you. Because <laughs> when a, somebody had you spotted and they started dropping depth charges, the first thing we would do is start counting, and we'd slowly count to 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, and if you got past 10, you probably got a good rocking around, but you survived. But if you didn't get to 10, there's, well, we don't have to go into that. We lost 57 submarines during uh, World War II. When you have a war, whether you might call it propaganda or not, but the first thing that is taught to any service people is to kill and hate that enemy. So I don't think any of us had, had a feeling of what we had done causing loss of life. Don't think that ever entered our minds at all. We looked at it that, well, there's one ship that's down and it's a victory for our side of the, of the coin. Now, one time we sunk a Japanese freighter that at the same time had been converted somewhat to a troop carrier. Boy, when that ship was sinking, uh, our captain let us all take a look through the periscope, and we saw hundreds of sailors in the water. And they were so anxious to kill us that the two escorts, they had destroyer escorts, they were dropping depth charges on us, and the concussion of those depth charges going off in the water would just lift these guys in the water up about a foot or two out of the water, not completely out of the water, but it would make them jump up, you know, like the explosion. They were killing their own people. Did you miss the Raton after you left it for the last time? Certainly did. I had, uh, came back to the United States uh, aboard three other submarines, and uh, I had some fungus that I developed in my fingernails from 
them being damp all the time. And uh, I got piggybacked, so to speak, into Oakland to the hospital where I was getting treatment for my fingers. And the Rayton arrived in San Diego maybe uh, a month or six weeks after that. And uh, Freddie, our cook, he knew that I lived in Pasadena, California, and he called me and said, uh, would I like to bring my mother and father down and tour the boat? And uh, gosh, I, I kind of laughed back at my mother. In those days, women didn't wear slacks. They all wore dresses. And they helped her aboard and told everybody at the hatch to stand back. A lady was coming aboard, and boy... My mother climbed down that stepladder for about 12, 15 feet. And, uh, she was going to see where her little boy had spent the war. It was great to see all those guys again. And uh, when, when uh, we got ready to leave the boat, Freddie had a little package wrapped up for my mother in a newspaper, and it was two pounds of butter. And they hadn't had butter for over a year because it was all rationed. And my mother just thought that was a great, great gift. Ninety-six-year-old U.S. Navy veteran Roy Christensen speaking with Ryan Warner in September of 2018 in Centennial. Christensen served on the USS Raton, a submarine stationed in the Pacific. After serving in the military, how do veterans see the world? One way to answer that is to have them take pictures. That's why the Colorado Photographic Arts Center teaches veterans to use cameras. Our producer, Michelle Fulcher, met one of the veterans, Amy Forestieri. Forestieri documented her work with Jesus on Colfax. The program serves the homeless and those living in poverty. So describe one of the pictures that we're seeing here. Tell me who's in the scene and what we're looking at. It's the first real picture I took when I joined the Jesus on Colfax ministry team. A man had passed away in his motel room. He had been deceased for four days before anybody noticed, um, and passed away without any known friends or family. So the community got together and had a memorial and did a balloon release for him. And it was so humbling and amazing to witness. And in the photo, you can't tell who is a pastor, who is uh, maybe struggling with a, a condition, a disability, an addiction, everybody looks the same, and that we're, there's no haves, have-nots. We're just us. That made an impact, and um, I actually signed up to be part of the team that day as well as a photographer. And that was my favorite photograph, and, and difficult, so it, it's not wonderfully maybe composed. It, 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 I got lucky, but it made me fall in love with the, the black and white and being in the neighborhood and kind of the raw street photography style. This is one of the early photographs you took. How did you put it together? Luck. <laughs> I, uh, I really had no idea even how to really focus a camera, and it was night, so it was almost pitch dark when we uh, did the balloon release, and so I had to play with a bunch of knobs and take thousands of pictures, and it, it just sort of happened and uh, turned out beautiful and made me fall in love with wanting to learn more about photography as well as the community and finding ways to combine the two. So you're part of this veterans workshop. Do you think that veterans see things through a different filter, through different eyes in a way? Yes, absolutely. Um, what, even when you start the 
playing field is level. They break you down and build you up. So everybody kind of knows what it feels like to start at the bottom and, and work their way up. That's and in then, training. You're yes, talking in about. training. And then you have such a mishmash of cultures, uh, faith backgrounds, education, uh, and then you combine that with going abroad and, and mixing in different cultures and communities. You just kind of understand and appreciate what we have going in America. I think get more sensitive to the hardships and the struggles that others face. I think you're a little bit more accepting, uh, flexible, and open-minded, and that's what I've seen in the veteran community, and there's a lot of veterans on Colfax. Talk to me about when you walked in to this class. What made you interested? Well, I'd been an engineer for a long time, and I actually had been just taking pictures. And I thought, well, I'll take a, a class because I was transitioning out of the engineering world. And, and then the veterans program came along. I thought, well, the worst they could say was no. And so I signed up and walked in and met phenomenal people and saw what they could create. I, I, I want to do that. Where did you serve? I served in the Air Force from 96 to 2000 at Buckley Air Force Base. I did four years with the Air Force, and then I became um, a contractor and worked for the Department of Defense, so a total 20 years with the government. And then my husband is a retired Marine, and so we uh, in deep military uh, history and family and connectedness to the community, and this was an amazing opportunity to, to continue to stay linked in with the veterans. How did you decide to take pictures of these folks from Jesus on Colfax? I'd heard of Jesus on Colfax Ministries, a pastor from Aurora. His wife had moved into the motel community on, on East Colfax in Aurora and were uh, just showing up and loving people. And I, I had that seed in my mind and, and thought, if I get into this veterans program, I want my very first project to be a gift back to God. I, I said, I'm going to cold call them and see if I could have my first project be about their ministry. So I was accepted into the veterans program and cold called the pastor and his wife. And it's my favorite place, pretty much my favorite place in the world to be. And I'm there all the time now. These photos, as I'm looking at them, they're not at pretty in the way that we would think about pretty. They're, they're gritty, as we would expect on the street. Mm -hmm. Is it important to you to sort of show the, the problems, the challenges that these folks face? It's very important because that's a huge part of the story. I want to show the beauty and the tenderness and the importance of relationship and human contact. But part of the story is the tough stuff, facing death, uh, addictions, and struggles. And these are struggles that a lot of us deal with and face. Many people just have more resources to hide them. So if the story really needs to be told by showing something that isn't glamorous and is hard to show, then I want to be able to show that in a way that brings respect, though, to the, the people who are in the photograph. Amy, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Michelle. Amy Forestieri speaking with Colorado Matters producer Michelle Fulcher last year. Forestieri learned to take photos through the Colorado Photographic Arts Center, and she continues pursuing that passion today. When we come back, helping veterans become entrepreneurs. This is Colorado Matters Veterans Day special from CPR News. You'll find all the stories behind the results of this year's election in Colorado at CPR.org. And this week on CPR News Politics Podcast Purplish, we're going deep on what we think it all means. I'm Caitlin Kim. Join me and my colleagues, Benta Berklin and Andrew Kenny, for a positively purposeful parsing of the vote that was. Look for Purplish wherever you get your podcasts.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Flashbangs are a military tool, a stun grenade that makes a loud noise and light. John Chapman of Denver used them in the Marines. Now he's out of the service, he's using his experience to make a better one. His company, Liberty Dynamic, is getting help from a business incubator for veterans called Bunker Labs. Hark Harold is the regional director. Let's revisit my conversation on this Veterans Day about this program that helps former members of the military become entrepreneurs. We'll get to the flashbangs in a minute, but first, let's talk about the veterans and their contribution to the U.S. economy. Hark, how much of an impact do veterans have? Uh, Veterans have a huge impact on the the economies. Uh, Here in Denver, in fact, since May of 16, when we really started focusing on veteran entrepreneurship, uh, companies that have been helped by Bunker Labs have raised over a million and a half in capital and started 23 created 23 jobs 12 of those for military veterans and military spouses. And that's just here in Denver in the past three years. And why do vets in particular need your help? Uh, veterans, 50% of the veterans who leave active duty do it someplace other than where they entered. So they don't have a network where they grew up in that area, most of them. Uh, so Bunker Labs exists to inspire, equip, and connect military veterans and military spouse entrepreneurs to the larger ecosystem. And that's connections are key to success. And part of it's providing that network that you might have if you'd lived in a place for a long time. Absolutely. We want to integrate into the larger ecosystem, which is really one of the amazing things with Denver, is how well Denver has open arms for entrepreneurs of all branches, of all services, um, of all types. And John, sometimes we think of good soldiers as people who follow orders, but maybe thinking outside the box is not as well rewarded. You served for four years in the Marines and in the Middle East. How did your service prepare you to run a business? So first off, thanks for having me. In the Marines, uh, you are taught to be self-thinking, self-reliant. You know, In these environments where you have your mission, you have your directive from higher command, nothing always goes as planned. You have to be able to think on your feet. You have to be able to react to the real world situations, implement a plan, execute the plan, and move forward with still keeping that mission and objective as in your crosshairs to complete. And tell us about your product. First explain what a flashbang is used for. All right. So a a flashbang or a noise flash diversionary device. um, It was developed in the, the 1970s by British SAS. It is utilized to create a tactical distraction in an unknown situation, allowing operators, officers to come in and pacify a situation without having to discharge a firearm. Current technology achieves this tactical advantage. However, collateral damage by the way of smoke, fire, or injury to officers or civilians is a byproduct of current technology. And we have solved those issues while still achieving the same physiological effects um, that are men and women need to protect themselves, to protect the innocent. And so you saw some of those flaws. What made you think, I can build a better one? So this this goes back to, you know, something that's been instilled from me being in the military is there's, there's no problem that can't be solved with a, a little bit of grit, a little bit of outside-the-box thinking, and uh, um, the ability to implement a plan and leverage networks that I've created um, gave me the opportunity to, to really sink my teeth into this and build something better. And how is your device better? It is, I mean, from the top down, we truly have um, solved the issues of what current technology has failed to 
um, implement over the, the last 40 years of their usage. So we have a digital fuse, um, which allows for zero time deviation, which might not sound like a big deal, but when you're doing a surgical entry into an unknown situation, a deviation of a few seconds makes a big difference. So a digital fuse allows this device to go off every single time when it is supposed to. The explosive um, nature of current technology does catch buildings on fire. Um, our device has a low thermal signature, so you can use this in a wider variety of circumstances, giving that tactical advantage to, to the men and women in uniform. We have a, a binary energetic material. Um, this means that we have broken down flash powder into a binary state, which is why this is important. So if you're a, a soldier or if you're a police officer and you have this on your person and it takes fragmentation or it takes a bullet or if you're in a rollover in an MRAP in, in Iraq, this thing is not going to sympathetically detonate. Um, it's not going to create a already bad situation and make it worse. So there's a lot of safety involved here. Hark, Liberty Dynamic is one of the companies in your business incubator, which you call Veterans and Residents. This is a program you piloted in Denver. What does it offer? Yeah, so the, the We Work Veterans and Residents program powered by Bunker Labs is a six-month uh, incubator program where the participants get a co-working space as well as we take them through a program to help them derive and develop their business. It's uh, up to 10 military veterans and or spouses at a time per city. And that's important that you're working with military spouses. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so all of our programs are open to military veterans and military spouses. Uh, spouses have a hard time sometimes with careers because of the constant moving from location to location. But if they can start their own business that's portable, it really helps with their ability to succeed and to contribute to the overall economic development of the country. So John's product was inspired by his military work, but vets and military spouses start businesses of all kinds. What are some of the other businesses working with Bunker Labs? Just here in Denver, we have uh, Sockeye Software, which is going to disrupt the gaming industry. We have some digital media marketing, leadership development firms, Convergent Impact, Invictus, which is a was started by two soldiers who were uh, experienced uh, PTSD and traumatic brain injury from being in issues over in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and Invictus Institute is working with the medical community to treat PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and depression, and to treat the brain, not the symptoms, to really cure it. And John, how has being a veteran residence helped you? So Veteran Residence Powered by Bunker Labs has given me the opportunity to not be on an island, not be isolated. Um, you know, going back to being back to the military, you relied on your team. Even though we were taught to be autonomous and to operate independently, you still had a team below you. So when it comes to entrepreneurship, it, depending on what stage you are, you might be uh, a single person team, you might have two, three or four. Um, but this opportunity has really given me um, the foundation to to seek out and to rely on other veterans that are going through the same pains, to, to allow me to gain confidence and know that I'm not the only one experiencing this, that we can actually share our current war stories with each other and the frustrations and grow and leverage um, their pains, their mistakes, and implement that into to my strategic plan going forward. Mm. And military veterans, I understand, are 30% more likely to employ other vets. How much of your workforce is veterans? 
So right now we are growing our veteran workforce. Um, my first full-time employee um, was a was a Marine. We did not work together. Um, we worked together overseas in a different capacity as uh, defense contractors. Um, he was, uh, like I said, first full-time employee. Um, we have three um, contractor um, individuals on the team, both veterans. And how are the vets who work for you different from other non-military employees? So we call it fire and forget. In the, in, the, in the military community, you give one direction and then you don't have to think about it again. So for me, I'm not a micromanager. Um, I have teams in the field right now. We're doing a demonstration um, outside of Dallas. And, you know, he set his mission plan. He briefs me in the morning and I know he's going to go and execute. And I don't have a single worry in my mind that it's not going to be executed how it's supposed to be. And then afterwards, um, you know, going back and relying on that that military training, I'm going to get an after action report and everything's going to be, you know, delineated. It's going to be written down. And then I, you know, we move on to the next. And that is very important for me as a manager, as a CEO and owner of a company that we have so many different things going on at any given time that I do not have the bandwidth to be concerned that that my team is not going to execute. Not saying that my non-military folks aren't doing that, but the, this just gives me the confidence um, to to really you know stretch ourselves out there and, and keep on pushing. And I understand that there's even kind of a historical component to how you got started with this, that things have changed since World War II and how people came back and got jobs. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, after World War II, approximately 50% of the veterans returning uh, became owners of, of small businesses. Uh, today, we have 200,000 people leaving active duty uh, each year about. 25% of those want to start a business, but less than 5% will. And so We Bunker Labs exists to help close that gap. Thank you so much for being here. Hark Harold is Regional Director for Bunker Labs, a nonprofit that helps military veterans start their own businesses. Marine veteran John Chapman is founder of Liberty Dynamic in Denver. Since we spoke last year, Bunker Labs, like so many companies, has gone virtual during the pandemic. Being wounded by an anti-tank grenade in Iraq was tough, but rowing 3,000 miles across the Atlantic was even more of a challenge. All right, this is Evan Stratton recording my day seven uh, weekly questions. Um, I guess I'll start with my low, the low for the week. Um, It's definitely just been missing family. Uh, specifically just missing my son Beckham. I've called home a few times and talked to my mom and my wife and he's just doing fun stuff like walking with a walker and things like that and um, while it makes you really happy it you know, makes it really hard, makes me really sad because I really miss him. That's Denver native and Marine veteran Evan Stratton from a video diary that he kept. The Purple Heart recipient spent 50 days 11 hours and 35 minutes rowing earlier this year before pandemic distancing with three other vets from the Canary Islands to Antigua. They did this to bring attention to veterans' mental health. Stratton spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner. You had a bit of a physical disability going into this. When you were injured in Iraq, you lost uh, much of the movement in one arm. How did that affect your ability to row? 
Yeah, you know, um, nerves can be fickle things. And uh, luckily, I healed up over time. You know, I spent a couple of years after that injury, my spinal, exer- uh, spinal accessory nerve was severed. So you get limited movement there, but over time it heals up. So I got about 85, 90% of that back. And luckily, it didn't affect me on the road too much. You know, you get everything hurts, you find out on the road. So <laughs> everything matter. hurts. <laughs> yeah. Not specifically one thing. Yeah, oh yeah. How are your, have your arms recovered? Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good now. Uh, I still wake up in the morning. My hand is so stiff. You get what's called trigger finger. So my hand, my fingers won't close all the way. So it'll take a little while to do some hand exercises. But legs, I can walk again. I'm used to land. So things are pretty good. Yeah, used to land. I mean, I've spent just a few hours on a boat, gotten off, and still felt like I was moving on the water. How long did that So the kind of vertigo thing probably wore off about 36 hours later. But then what you don't really realize is that you atrophy. You're either sitting in a rowing position or you're laying down for 50 days. So when you get back, everything's atrophied. So your lower back, your hips, your thighs, your uh, calves are so tight. I was like an old man in a walker. I couldn't walk like unassisted for a couple days. Oh, that's so interesting. In other words, your upper body strength is tremendous. I'm guessing your arms were great, but everything else has been sedentary. Oh yeah, yeah, just the walking. I mean, you use your legs a lot, quite a bit in the in the drive for the row, but it's just like your calves atrophy and you're, you're just not walking. So you're just using these muscles you haven't really exercised. Okay, you called your team Fight or Die, that's spelled O-A-R, oh, or, yeah. um, and this was actually part of a race, the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were the only American team, the only all veteran team how was the idea for this born in landlocked Denver? <laughs> yeah, Ocean Row in USA, Denver, Colorado. <laughs> um, it was actually set out in 2018 by a couple trailblazers. So there's a group of American veterans last year that rode and they set up Fight or Die as a nonprofit. So they were the very first U.S. veteran team to ever go to the Talisker Whiskey Land Challenge and complete it. So they're kind of the trailblazers. And they said, this is this message and the idea of, you know, veterans going out and doing hard things is important. We need to keep doing it. So they set it why, up. Why do you think they said that? We need to keep doing it, the, these tough things. Yeah, you know, it's it's veterans are trying to connect with veterans in all sorts of different ways these days. I don't think PTSD, TBI, mental health is, it's not a hidden issue anymore. I think civilians and veterans are alike, are aware of the issues that veterans are facing. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole lot of different ways to approach it. What we wanted to do is say, hey, light that spark. Life doesn't end after the military. So you do this epic things for four to 20 years of your life when you're young, but then you get out and then what? You have a whole lot of years left to live and all veterans go through this moment where they have to re-find themselves. They have to look in the mirror and say, who am I going to be? And it's quite possible that an injury forces you out of the military earlier than you foresaw. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I think that's what drew me to this is that injury for me was not final. And I realized that you can overcome injury and it's not definitive. Just like being in the military is not definitive. There's more life to live. So when you get out of the military, you can't just stay in this military mindset. Go out and do big things. Row an ocean. Why Row not? Row an ocean <laughs> is one way to do it. Okay. So the, the idea had been born previously. And uh, yep. my understanding is that the members of your team We're all over the country, Alaska, Montana, Texas, and you in Colorado. 
How do you become a cohesive rowing team with everyone in disparate places? Um, that's where being in the military and being veterans, really, we have the advantage. You don't pick who you go to war with. You have to make it work with the guys that you have and the resources you have. So where most people that go to the uh, race are like childhood friends, their siblings, their, uh, you know, father, son teams, mother, daughter teams. Uh. We had to, you know, put this thing together, not knowing each other. But that's the advantage of being a veteran. I don't think any other group you could find four strangers and put them in a boat in Roanoke Ocean like veterans. So you all trained individually? Yep. So there's a lot of training, just physical training yep. individually, but there's quite a bit that goes into this race. You know, we spent seven months of preparing and that's a lot of different things are going on. You have to make sure you have the right equipment, that you're making certain milestones, that you're giving the race certain documentation. We went down to Mobile, Alabama for three weeks on the boat and retrofitted the boat, made sure we had everything we had, got all the supplies we needed and trained day in and day out on that boat rowing. That boat, I want you to describe it. It was called Wooby. The Wooby. The yep. Whoopie, okay. Yep. That's not a name that inspires fear no, or, or no. Con confidence. It did have a shark face painted on the bow. Yep. So the Whoopie is actually a piece of military equipment. It's a poncho liner. It's a little soft blanket. And it's like one of those only comforts you have when you're out in the field or you're on deployment. So the boat is our comfort for the row. Oh, I see. You named the boat. After a whoopee, after yep. that thing that kind of cloaks you totally when you're in the battlefield. Exactly. So and, Yeah, and describe the boat because it sounds like there wasn't a lot of room to move. No, the boat is 28 feet long. And so that's just enough for six, you know, four, six foot tall people, you know, the kind of max height to get on this boat. There's a bow cabin and an aft cabin. The cabins are just big enough to where you wouldn't be able to get two people in there comfortably. So they're just big enough to have one person in there plus equipment. Um, there's two rowing stations. So you have two rowers on, two rowers resting for 24 hours a day. So in total, you would row 12 hours a day. And then you and that, you know, cabin mate you have just switch positions. So while I'm rowing, my cabin mate is resting and then vice versa. Did you sleep much? Uh, as much as you can. <laughs> um, you have about two hours of rest. So in that rest period, you're eating food, you're kind of cleaning yourself, you're doing whatever boat maintenance may need to happen at that time. So I'd say, you know, the most you would ever get rest-wise is an hour and a half. And it's difficult to sleep on that boat. You could hear just in that video diary, the water and the wind that comes through the boat just while I'm recording on my phone. That's so right. I watched a lot of your videos and they have this constant. Oh, yeah. And it gets worse than Rowing that. sound. I it mean, sounds it, like someone, when it waves, like a good wave hits that boat, it sounds like someone's just taking a sledgehammer to the boat. And you're like, man, is this thing going to come apart? <laughs> you know, difficult to sleep. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Purple Heart recipient and Marine veteran Evan Stratton, who with the team of other vets rode the Atlantic Ocean, 50 days, 11 hours, 35 minutes rowing from the Canary Islands to Antigua. So does that mean for 50 days you you never left that boat? Exactly. Just we never. never left you, that you didn't boat. go onto another craft nope. for a cocktail No other boats gave us assistance. <laughs> nope. Yeah, everything has to be 100% self-sustained on that boat. So if you take assistance of any kind from anybody or anything, you're disqualified. So all of our food was brought on the boat. We have a water maker that desalinates the water. So we have fresh drinking water. You go to the bathroom on that boat. You sleep on that boat. You do not leave that boat for that entire time. You go to the bathroom on the boat, but there's not a head. Nope. There's a five-gallon bucket. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> Just lovely. Yep. How's your mental health? I'd like to talk a little bit about yeah. 
um, that aspect of it because the, the, the trajectory, the trek that you took was all about raising awareness of veterans' mental health. What, what, if anything, did you struggle with after your injury? So I like to say I had a triple injury. I was not only physically injured from the grenade, um, I had a traumatic brain injury from the grenade blasts and I also lost my best friend uh, and gunner, Brandon Lada, in that attack. I was 19 years old when that happened. I don't think you really have the emotional capacity to process that. And to this day, you know, I still reprocess that, but it really came to a head for me when I was about 22 years old. I'd left the military and I really had to come face to face with two big questions. One, who am I going to be now that I'm not in the military? And two, the emotional emotional processing of losing my friend. You, he said his name was Brandon. Brandon T. Lott of, uh, you know, New Braunfels, Texas. Yep. How often did you think of Brandon during the row? I think of him daily. He's never left me. He um, is instrumental in keeping me alive. He basically sacrificed himself. So um, he repelled the assault when those grenades came in for just long enough for the rest of our team to kind of react to it. So I owe my life to him. Was there guilt associated with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you lose somebody and you, you there's so much to it. One, you watch them die, which is traumatic. Two, you want to, you have to figure out how do you live your life when someone has that amount of sacrifice for you. And that's what I really struggled with is, you know, I'm still here. He's not. How do I do right by him? Yeah, it's not fair. Exactly. And then that's how I kind of turned the corner with things. You know, I kind of had a breakthrough moment. I was going to therapy and I was doing different things to kind of help process that stuff. And I was like, well, the best thing I can do is live an absolutely incredible life to honor that sacrifice. And that's kind of what led to the row is it's the 10 year anniversary of his um, sacrifice It was the 10 year anniversary of my injury. And so what better way to get out there and, you know, carry on his legacy and to, you know, prove to myself and others that injury isn't final, that it's mental health is not the end point. There's no one stop solution, but it is a journey, just like rowing the ocean. You have to leave the safe harbor and you have to row your own personal oceans in order to go out and do big things. But it's man, it's worth it. It's so poetic, Evan. Thank you. You said earlier that there's just more talk about mental health. There's more talk about PTSD and TBI, traumatic brain injury. But I have also heard that the military culture makes it difficult to say I'm struggling, especially during battle, Mm -hmm. in the battlefield. Mm -hmm. Is that changing fast enough? You know, I think there's a difference between services on active duty and then services once you leave the military. Uh Um, I think... There's been great, great strides on the active duty side. And, you know, it's been a little while since I've been there. I think it's when I was in the active duty side, I remember it was still kind of a question of like, ah, how do we deal with this? Is it really an issue or not? I think we now know it is absolutely an issue and the service is absolutely, it needs to be addressed early and often, even on the active duty side. And it's all about readiness. You know, you need to have a force and readiness to carry out the mission. And mental health is a part of that conversation now. Baking that in, if you will. Absolutely. Uh Okay. Back to the row here. Uh, How was the weather? You you said that when things got windy, it sounded like the boat was being hit by a sledgehammer. What was the sort of sketchiest it got? So you got, we had everything. We had everything from big waves and high winds to flat, calm, bright, sunny, cloudless sky days. What does a big wind look like in a boat that small? 
So we had about 30 knot winds when we took off from Antigua. So what we, um, it's a UK race, so it's all, you know, uh, British driven. So as they put it, it's going to be a bit punchy. <laughs> it's going to be a bit punchy. So we had a bit of a punchy start <laughs> as we uh, as we left La Gomera. And, you know, the wind and the waves are good things. You want those things because they help you go faster. Really? Yeah. So the boat itself, you can go, let's say, about, you know, one to two and a half miles per hour just rowing on flat conditions. Well, you get some wind and some waves. Now you're doing an average speed of five to six miles per hour. Assuming that they're in your favor. Assuming they're in your favor. And that's the trick is they're always kind of shifting on you and you got to, you know, navigate that. That's part of the race. Um, You try to keep them at your back. So it's pushing you west. You know, that's where you want to go. You want to go west. Um, We had everything though. So I think probably the the hairiest we got were about 45 foot waves and 45. Yeah, and during the so day... They, they look like walls to you? It looks like the whole... Like, you know, you don't have earth here, but I'm going to say when you're standing out there, just imagine like everything you can see just starts swelling up above your head. And the next thing you know, you can't see anything because you're in a valley and you're just riding up the wave. <gasps> and it's... Uh, <laughs> It's a it's a gut wrenching, exciting, exhilarating feeling, you know, and you you kind of get used to it. And now you surf them, though. So you're trying to pull at the top of the wave. So the nose goes over. So now you're picking up like 10, 15 knots going down the waves. And that's what kind of makes it exciting is you're sitting with your row partner and you're like, all right, let's get it. Let's get these waves. Are you addicted to adrenaline? I would not say I'm like an adrenaline seeker. I've definitely had my fair share of it. Um you, you learn, though, you know, you weigh risk with preparation and you take on big things and there's always an element of risk to some big things to do. But, you know, you, you negate those risks through preparation and, you know, working hard at it. Would you row across an ocean again? Absolutely. Um, I think it was an incredible experience. I'd love to share that experience with people that I'm close with. You know, there's nowhere you can go on this earth and become unplugged the way I was unplugged. You can go camping for a week, but that's only for a week. (laughs) Imagine two months where there's no work demands, there's no life demands, there's no texts, there's no emails, there's no calls. You just get reconnected with nature. You get the front row seat to the sunrise and the sunset every day. You get a billion stars every night. You can't get that anywhere else. The front row Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, Well well done, Evan. Thank you. Slipping the puns. Purple Heart recipient Evan Stratton speaking with Ryan Warner in February. Stratton rode across the Atlantic Ocean with three other veterans on team Fight or Die to bring attention to veterans' mental health needs. Thanks for joining us on this Veterans Day. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're on to the east, you're on to the west.